Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We're glad to have with us today on The Right Side of History, John Burlau, who is the author of the new book, George Washington, Entrepreneur. Well, welcome to the show, John. Thanks, it is so great to be on to talk about George Washington, Entrepreneur. Yeah, so what drew you to uh, take this unique angle on Washington's life? And um, and also, what, what do you mean in the book when you call George Washington the country's first true entrepreneur? Well, I have spent a lifetime writing about and studying entrepreneurs. I profiled entrepreneurs uh, for Investors Business Daily, wrote stories about them for Washington Times Insight when I was a staff writer there. Then, when I went to the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where I'm a senior fellow, um, I'm, I've studied barriers to entrepreneurship and red tape that makes it harder for companies to go public or for uh, people to, uh, to, start out, uh, uh, to start up companies, uh, you know, trying to get rid of the red tape and make it easier for the, for the underdog. And I was fascinated about uh, a little more than a decade ago when Mount Vernon built, rebuilt George Washington's whiskey distillery because that's just all I had really, I had revered George Washington as many Americans do, but really didn't know that much about him as compared to Jefferson and Franklin and all of the creative business ventures he did. And I found out it was just more, so much more than the distillery. It was the, how he stopped growing tobacco when he thought that was harming the soil and diversified his crops into wheat and hemp and dozens of other crops. And then he built a flour mill where he actually branded his flour with the G. Washington signature for, uh, to, to export, to send to England, you know, when, when America was a colony and uh, well, as well as across the colonies. And I had written articles about him. And then a friend, Jennifer Cohen, who was an agent, said, well, why don't we pitch this as a book? And I'm so lucky that Adam Bellow, uh, editor, uh, who was editor at uh, St. Martin's, the All Points label, signed me. And I worked with him and others at St. Martin's and got input from a whole lot of other people, talked to the Mount Vernon folks, and just wrote this book about George Washington's entrepreneurship and how that informed his struggles for liberty, as well as the, the, uh, the fight for capitalism and entrepreneurship today. Yeah, it really is uh, notable, I think, John, how much the kind of commercial aspect of George Washington's life uh, shaped, I think, certainly his outlook, but uh, many of his life's decisions. I mean, it was helpful to him that he had this running, working uh, plantation. I mean, this was something that, uh, look, many of the other founders whose lives were consumed by politics and war, you know, struggled to even keep an operation going. Uh, he did, I think, sometimes somewhat miraculously because he was such a a good businessman. I mean, I think I think it's very notable, especially when you read through a lot of the papers of George Washington. You know how meticulous he is. I mean, he this is a guy who kept careful notes, careful records. He he really had uh, his business down pat, while also at the same time being the father of his country. Leading a revolution, being spending many years in the military, and then of course in politics. How did Washington do all that? I mean, how did he have these multiple lives in one life? Can you explain that? Good question. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he didn't come from 
the word privilege is bandied about today, but he didn't come as from a privileged background as, uh, say, Jefferson and Adams, um, uh, and, and his family could not afford to send him to college or to school in England like his older brothers. His father died when he was 11, which was rough on the family, plus in those days, unless you were the oldest child, you didn't inherit much. So he actually started out, um, he didn't, uh, he wouldn't get titled to Mount Vernon until he was like 30 when he inherited part of it from his older brother and then had bought some of the land around it that is Mount Vernon today. But he started out just in the gig economy of the 18th century as a surveyor, a land surveyor, um, originally for the Fairfax family that are the namesakes of, of D.C.'s Fairfax County, but just did about uh, hundreds of surveys of undeveloped land across the state of Virginia, the, the colony of Virginia then, and just developed reputation there. Plus, he would see the undeveloped land from his surveyor's wages, buy some of that, or get compensated actually as land instead of, you know, money wages. So that's when he started out, you know, acquiring real estate. And I think he learned, you know, you want to keep track of what you have, you know, so you don't lose it. He was afraid of losing it. So as you said, he kept meticulous notes from the time he was 14, and he took careful, was very careful, even during the war, to reserve those notes to be under lock and key. Somehow he knew from an early age that his business ledgers, other things, would be important. So there was just there. Sometimes there isn't much, you know, about George Washington in terms of, you know, Martha. Unfortunately, this was the custom they burned most of the love letters between them. But he his business records, the ledgers, his diary. Um, uh, Order invoices are an open book, and you can learn so much from those. You just mentioned Martha. Um, you do write in the book, you have a whole chapter on how she was sort of the business partner in chief here. Uh, could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that was fascinating. I mean, again, it's sort of the same. We had the same issue with George as with Martha that revered, but, you know, you don't um, – uh, you, uh, you can't exactly relate to them, but I just, and the love letters being gone, I mean, they're like Abigail Adams really never spoke in public, but there are more than a thousand of her letters to John preserved, and with George and Martha, there are only three known letters for them corresponding together, but she had a wealth of other correspondence as well as her business records. She, like George, came from a, a modest background, but then she married one of the richest men in Virginia, um, Daniel Custis, and then she had two children. She had two children that survived uh, with him, and then he he died when her when her children were young. So she was a widow. She she didn't really have like a father or older brothers to help her take care of business. So she handled a lot of his ordering from you know shipping tobacco, ordering from British companies collecting debts, and she was a very savvy businesswoman, and then when George Washington met her, and they, um, you know, he had control, uh, control of, of, uh, of, her, of her lands from the, uh, from the Custis estate, as well as Mount Vernon, but she played a very active role as far as negotiating, and she would later run when they were trying to make their own clothes so they wouldn't be as dependent on the British, the, the, text, the textile shop, and was really, uh, was really a fitting, good... Uh, good partner with uh with with george so it's a it was a fascinating story about her too also we know again from some of the things some of the business orders like most of the almost all of the paintings are her with older so we don't know what she was like when she was young but the shipping orders she sent of dress sizes and you know you couldn't 
fudge dress sizes or they wouldn't fit. Showed that she was, you know, pretty, you know, uh, pretty attractive, physically attractive uh, when she went when she was young. And there have been pictures of drawings of her based on that now. So we know, you know, from their their business, you know, just much more about George and George and Martha, as, as well as we knew, you know, the fact that they loved each other, that she would, you know, brave the rapids to just come be with him every year you know, when he was fighting the war. Yeah, it's interesting. You can actually find one of those uh, interpretations of what she looked like young at the Mountain Vernon Estate, which, of course, I, I highly recommend every American during their lifetime to at least make one pilgrimage. It's actually it's, it's a phenomenal experience. But certainly one thing, you know, that's that's very interesting about the estate is, you know, how he, he washed and diversified his crops, all the different things that he was growing there and produced – uh, right there, it really was, you know, it, it basically like a factory. Uh, c- can you describe first of all the different products that that he that he cultivated and made there, and also uh, where were these things sold? I mean, w- w- was Washington just selling to the people of Virginia? Was his business uh, something that you would just find in the colonies in the early United States, or was this really uh, an international uh, operation where he was selling all over the world? His flour and some other products were an international brand. Um, maybe one of the, maybe the maybe the first from the from the United from the United States. But he learned with tobacco. There was it was primarily a foreign market, Great Britain. There was a glut of tobacco, so the, so he couldn't get the price he wanted, and there was no way to brand his from the other tobacco. So the first thing he did was to stop growing tobacco, and then diversifying his crops. And by the way, he read extensively. He read a lot of books extensively, agricultural books, and would correspond throughout his life, like with British agricultural writers. But he would plant wheat and hemp, and he also had a fishery that caught you know, literally millions of fish per year, like shad and herring and other things from the Potomac, which is right you know, outside uh, Mount, Mount Vernon. It's on the banks of the Potomac. And then he had built a grist mill, flour mill, where they took the wheat and sifted that into flour. Now, as a legislator in, uh, in the Virginia House of Burgesses, which was like the colonial legislature, he had created a bill that set standards for refined flour and also allowed people to attach their name in a sort of trademarking scheme. Now, he, he did this. This was available to everyone, not just George Washington. Uh, but he... Once he did that for everyone, he took advantage of this and registered the G. Washington name at the Fairfax County Courthouse. I footnote the records where he did in the book, and he was able to affix the name. And then he shipped uh, the G. Washington flower across the colonies into the West Indies, the British West Indies, and to Great Britain itself. And people became familiar with the G. Washington name. In fact, he became so familiar that I argue in the book that it may actually be one of the reasons he was chosen as general. It's always a mystery, you know, why he was sort of chosen on the first ballot of the Continental Congress when his achievements really weren't that great and he wasn't a high ranking in the French and Indian War. Um, a lot of people are speculating he wore his military uniform. Uh, Adams uh, nominated him. But if you look at John Adams' speech... One of the things John Adams mentions as part of Washington's qualification is his, quote, independent fortune. So I speculate that, you know, but I think it's educated speculation, 
that people there would have known about his flower because the independent fortune, you're talking about your business enterprise, and see what a good businessman he is, that that may have been indeed one of the reasons he was chosen as general. You think that his, his skills as a businessman were also helpful as a general? You think that directly related to his success leading the Continental Army? Very much. His skills as a businessman and the skills in knowing the land from real estate speculation and as a surveyor. Like he would know the topography of the land, what it could be done, like when he was doing surprise attacks, like the Second Battle of Trenton, crossing the Delaware, uh, certainly. And it's also the things that he, that he asked for, like beer and cider in a letter, but he also asked the Continental Congress to appropriate money for him, for him to hire the best cartographers, map makers at the time, to draw maps of some of the terrain so they would know the terrain. So he spent the money from the Continental Congress very wisely on supplies uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Revolutionary War. I mean, not that he didn't make mistakes, not that he wasn't, you know, he was, he was imperfect throughout his life, but he just was very wise and frugal throughout, uh, uh, throughout, his, throughout his life. That, that's interesting uh, that, 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 you know, the, that's one of the reasons being sort of a, a self-made man or self-fortune in this case. That was actually almost a new concept then, right? I mean, they, this was, these were people who, uh, are after a revolution from a, a very class-based Britain, uh, being a actually self-made entrepreneur was something. It really was that there were the top families. I mean, Virginia was very much like Great Britain itself uh, as a colony where there were aristocratic families and the Washingtons weren't at the bottom, but they were nowhere near the top. His father had been like a, a sort of a speculator too, Augustine Washington, and, you know, bought up when the British wanted to mine raw iron at, at the colonies, he bought up some of the lands with iron around it. So he sort of had learned that or inherited it from his father and mother, but yes, it was a new concept in Washington to become, to propel from being entrepreneur to being a president. It's sort of, I would argue, it forged the nation in entrepreneurship and the concept of the self-made man and woman. The first businessman to be president. <laughs> you can say that, yes. One thing that I think jumping a little bit to, to current events, of course, you know, there's this now ongoing debate about American history that has kind of swept in George Washington among many other historical figures. Of course, we saw recently a statue of George Washington come down in, in Portland, Oregon, and even some polls showing that people are willing to, many are willing to straight up erase images from Mount Rushmore. Can you talk about George Washington's legacy today, explain you know, why this is a person's record who we should still examine and study? I know there was a school in Tennessee saying that George Washington is not really relevant to the way we teach history today. Can you kind of explain why Americans should still learn about George, as if this has to be said, but why we should still learn from George Washington here, uh, you know, over two, two centuries later, and why Americans should still celebrate his legacy? Well, that is a great question. And uh, George Washington thought as, as, an, uh, as a private citizen, as an entrepreneur, and as a public official for, for more inclusion, for the, the disadvantages, that, uh, to, for many of the disadvantages to, to have their full rights. He championed Irish Catholic. He had an assistant general, an aide him in the war, John Fitzgerald, who after the war, Washington uh, put on the board of the 
Potomac Company to improve the Potomac River, had many of his parties at Mount Vernon, and actually Catholics were heavily discriminated against. I mean, through the 1770s, they couldn't even serve on juries or pray publicly in Virginia. And then 10 years later, after with Washington's patronage and support, John Fitzgerald, uh, Irish Catholic immigrant, would become uh, mayor of Alexandria, and he would help found what is today St. Mary's uh, St. Mary's Basilica. And so Washington was also great friends with people like the Carrolls in Maryland, Charles Carroll, who was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence and then became, with Washington's support, Maryland's first senator. Um, Washington also, well, knew, knew um, many of the Jewish faith from his uh, association with the Freemasons, the Freemason Lodge. And in the 1790s, shortly after he was president, uh, Washington, at the invitation of a fellow Freemason, Moses Sykes, uh, would come and speak to the Toro Synagogue in Rhode Island. And he would say in that speech that um, we give to bigotry no sanction. And people, um, Jewish scholars looking at that said that is that speech is a real milestone because not only was he saying that Jews were, you know, would be tolerated, but that they would be full partners in the American Republic. Now, on slavery itself, it's important to realize Washington grew up in slavery. It was the, it seemed to be the natural order of things, as it was for much of the must of much of the rest of the colonists, but. He, from his own experience watching black, free blacks fight in the Revolutionary War and seeing that blacks could form other, other uh, uh, enslaved blacks could form, uh, perform other tasks well in things like the distillery and in things like the flour mill, he realized, he came to realize that slavery was an evil system. And he first condemned slavery in publicly, actually back in 1774 when he and George Mason signed a list of grievances with the Great Britain, the Fairfax Resolve, calling, which called the slave trade and the cruel and unnatural trade and urged the British to end it. Then he would say in his letters, in a lot of his letters, that he, he wanted to see slavery abolished. Now, people were saying, well, he only said that in his letters, but letters of George Washington were published in his lifetime, so he knew that would, that would get out, and he did things like refuse to buy new refuse to buy new slaves or break up slave families. Then, in his will, he took the un, really unprecedented step, and it's the oh, he's the only one of the founding fathers who had slaves to do this, setting all his slaves to be free upon Martha's death. But then she freed them earlier. So, as well as providing for their education and for the older ones for their like old age pension type benefits, which Mount Vernon paid to them until the 1830s. So he really did more than just about anyone of his, in his era who grew up in the South with the slave trade to no other founding father who had slaves has, has had freed all of his slaves. So he was much better than his era. He helped to he helped by setting up the American government and his personal actions to end slavery. And he was better than his than than his era. Whereas you can argue guys like Woodrow Wilson in the 20th century who resegregated the government were worse than his era. And I think that's what's evaluating you know historical figures. We need we need to focus on were they better than the than the era? Did they have other great achievements? And did they help bring about change? And Washington passes all those tests 
with flying colors. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. too. That even even the fact that George Washington, I mean, was such a great businessman, it seems like even that kind of aided in his ability to take care of and then eventually free his own slaves because, you know, unlike some other founders, I mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson obviously in writing the Declaration of Independence, uh, the words that it contained helped to liberate generations of, of those thereafter. His own his own business operation was, for the most part, basically a mess. And like many other plantation owners, uh, he was heavily indebted. Washington seems to be one of the few who had a highly efficient organization to the point where uh, he had the ability uh, to, to, to free his slaves upon his death and actually provide for them. I mean, that to, does that kind of show – you know, the, this kind of strength of Washington as a businessman and entrepreneur, too? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that strengthened his business, and, and he had to cope with the fact that Mount Vernon was a, itself was a mess and when, when he returned uh, both from the war and from being president. But, of course, right after he was president, he started on the advice. Now, he would, one of the, th- one of the also virtues about him is he would take advice of his Scottish farm manager and his Irish Catholic friend, uh, John Fitzgerald, he started a whiskey distillery, and that really helped with Mount Vernon's finances. And now, of course, Mount Vernon has reopened it. So he had the ability to all do all this. It still was a, was a burden on, on his heirs, though, but he, he took this and, and he made, you know, he didn't, he didn't have to do this. He certainly didn't have to, there was nothing requiring him to free the slaves, certainly nothing to provide for them, yet he did. I did appreciate the point uh, about you know he he was better than his time as opposed to so many people who were worse than their time. You do argue in the book that uh, you think he was as much of an intellect as Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, and I really... and and, and uh, I, I, I guess also, do you think most historians have given him a kind of shortchanged him on that point? I think they have. I think they have. Um, I think. Um, I hate to play the founding fathers off against each other like that. They're all great, but since other have others have, I feel like to have to answer it. He was as creative and brilliant in his own way as they were. There were some things that they could they had knowledge they had and he couldn't have. Like he couldn't, you know, fully read read Latin. There's a debate, you know, he may have been able to even read some Latin. But he was and this made it all remarkable that he was self self taught and he read books about, you know, that informed every decision he made, read both religion, philosophy. He most likely read Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations. In fact, it's almost a certainty we, he did. We have the underlying passages from his copy of, of, of the book. Um, you know, so he read about, you know, the theory of capitalism and against mercantilism. But even for things like he was he was considered a great horseman. Jefferson called him the greatest horseman ever. And uh, Washington learned that from experience and he had some natural ability but he would read books we know again from those invoices the the receipts about horsemanship about taking care of sick horses about how to do jumps there were how-to books about horses and agriculture and other things uh, surveying in the 18th century and washington read all of the all of those mount vernon and other places have a lot of his library and it's extensive and we also we also know from the purchase orders and he was also just, he listened to people, and he was able to see things. Like uh, when he read about ballooning, and he also would later welcome balloonists, uh, uh, hot air balloonists, to Philadelphia when it was the capital and he was president, and have cannon salutes for them. But upon reading about uh, when the French started 
with the hot air balloons, he said he actually contemplated that, well, one day they might be coming uh, over here to America instead of by plowing through the ocean, they will be, quote, flying through the air. One thing I think that does relate to this book, but as president, we know that Hamilton mostly had Washington's ear on a lot more than his fellow Virginia farmer, uh, Jefferson. Why do you think that is? And how do you think uh, Washington came down on, I guess, the, the economic argument there between those two? It's a very interesting question, and it's, it's worthy of more research. You know, Washington listened to everybody, and he was the one who set up the idea of a presidential cabinet, which is not in the Constitution, but Washington felt that he benefited from having his top department heads air diverse views, and other presidents uh, through our current president have, have, uh, have followed that tradition. But I would say, yes, he, he listened to Hamilton quite a bit and ended up more than Jefferson. He Remember, he fought, you know, against uh, Great Britain, uh, British restrictions on manufacturing. He was worried. He specifically wrote George Mason in 1769 that Britain was putting too many restrictions on manufacturing and could they confiscate, quote, my manufactories? Because Britain, as part of the British mercantilist system, not only did they force the colonies to buy all of the imported goods from them and not from France or other countries in Europe, they said that you had to, you couldn't even make your own things like nails and horseshoes because that would compete with British manufacturers. We know Washington read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and he in fact used the word invisible hand in a somewhat different context, but still spoke of an invisible hand spontaneous order in his first inaugural address. So my understanding is he never fully accepted Hamilton's report on manufacturers, and he put through the tariffs that Hamilton wanted, but he did sympathize to some extent that manufacturing needed to be built up. And he was certainly against, he mentioned this in his farewell address, regulation without representation. He talked about the one sphere of the government seizing power from Congress or the spirit of encroachment. So he had knew, he had faced, for him and for others, the revolution was as much about regulations as it was about taxes. So he very much wanted to, I think, was influenced by Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and wanted, you know, to give America the free development, to develop in manufacturing and also innovations in agriculture. And Washington, of course, knew the importance of patents, intellectual property from his own experience, trademarking, and even as a private citizen, championed uh, state patents before there was a federal patents for James Rumsey, who is considered now one of the co-inventors of the steamboat. And he signed the Patent Act in uh, Washington, signed the Patent Act in 1790s. And in those days, the president actually signed and reviewed the patent. So he, he awarded the patent. One of, the, the, one of his first patents was for the steamboat, which changed everything as far as, as far as transportation is responsible for the transportation that we have, have today. It was the first time you could be transported without an animal or current on the wind. It just, you know revolutionized commerce, particularly when we got to the Louisiana Territory. So he very much uh, was, you know, saw the advantages of, you know, invention, intellectual property, and capitalism. And, and Hamilton was a part of that, but certainly so was Adam Smith. John Burlow, the author of George Washington, Entrepreneur. John, is there anything else uh, you would like to tell our listeners about the book? 
Well, Justin is available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's, and, and other fine book sites. Uh, George Washington Entrepreneur. Put it in your search engine, and I hope you enjoy George Washington Entrepreneur because I enjoyed writing it, and uh, I would love hearing from readers. And I thank uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute for my their CEI.org for their encouragement of me writing this book. John Burlow, the author of George Washington Entrepreneur, he is a uh, an award-winning journalist and a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you so much for having me on, Fred and Jared. Thank you for joining us on The Right Side of History. Again, my name is Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. You can check out our podcast on Ricochet, Stitcher, and on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.